Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello, gentle listeners. We are here for the very last episode about party politics in the UK. And I am David Crowther, and I am unfortunately have been joined by... Oh, Royfield Brown. Sorry about Wake that, up, David. Royfield. I, I was looking at my, yes. looking at my copious notes <laughs> with all these listeners that we actually have. So, uh, Okay, yes, this time... Let... I, I was deep in notes. Okay, let us, this time let us make a resolution... Royfield, not to blather mm-hmm. on, okay? Absolutely. Repeat after me. I, Royfield Brown. I, David Crowther. <laughs> All right. So today, what we're going to do is several bits. The first bit is that several of you have very kindly submitted questions, which is very nice of you. And a couple of you have even done speech pipes, which is very modern. And that's great. Mm-hmm. So we're going to stitch those in. We're going to start with that. Then we are going to have some general reflections, some general points about party politics. All right. And then finally, uh, we're going to have a bit of fun, as suggested by Boot Claxter. And we are going to do worst MPs, best MPs, and PMs, 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 Prime Ministers, Prime Ministers. Sorry, Prime Ministers, pardon me, wrong way around, dyslexic. And I, then we're going to do some sort of m- most momentous events in UK politics. OK, Alice Carr, mm-hmm. then if you're sitting comfortably, we will begin. So the first question was from Eric Trometer. Thank you very much, Eric. It's very kind of you. This is Eric Trometer. What exactly are Prime Minister resignation honours? Why were Harold Wilson's in 1976 so controversial? And what happened in 1997 regarding them that opened up near P- 
That's all. Thanks. The UK Prime Minister's resignation honours list is an official list of people honoured by the British Prime Minister for their um, good works. At least um, that's ideally what it's supposed to be. Uh, Though historically, it's a way of giving honours, knighthoods or lordships or life peerages to people who are connected to the establishment. Now, um, historically, Winston Churchill became Sir Winston Churchill as part of a resignations honours list. Margaret Thatcher became a baroness. Margaret Thatcher became a baroness through a resignations honours list, etc. Now, Wilson's 1976 resignations list looked different. It felt very different from what had gone before. The first draft included multiple appointments to high honours, knighthoods and uh, life peerages to businessmen who had some level of a connection to either Wilson or the Labour Party. Most were immigrants who'd made it good in the UK. Now, Wilson was already known for his innovative honours. In 1965, his appointment of the Beatles as MBEs, members of the British Empire, caused a minor controversy back then. Now, um, the seeming violations of tradition, not just giving it to the the great and the good, uh, in Wilson's lists were to become normal in the 80s and the 90s when popular celebrities and entrepreneurs and female lords and others outside of the traditional boundaries of the establishment were given gongs. So really what Wilson uh, did, uh, Wilson's honours did, was to represent people of merit over those in the hierarchy. Fantastic. Next question is from Rob Cochran, and Rob also came in with a speech pipe, and here it is. Hi, this is Rob from Western Australia. I have a rather general question. When I hark back to Georgian politics and the influence of patronage in the British system at that time, I can understand that historically. But I cannot understand why the UK retains a first-past-the-post voting system in the 21st century when there are obviously other systems that allow for an individual's preferences to be sorted and you get much more of a compromise candidate elected to the parliament. So I'd be interested in your views on that. Luke and I had a very brief discussion on this on on chat, but uh, generally I'd like to get your ideas. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Rob. And actually raised a similar point um, on the Facebook site. So there is one simple question or answer to this question, which is neither of the big two who dominate politics have any interest in losing a system which absolutely privileges them. I mean, that's the dirty explanation. They have a vested interest in retaining it. It gives them a complete grip over power and they you know, argue to and fro. So I guess that's the big thing. Having said that, at the beginning of the disastrous uh, Liberal Conservative coalition um, led by David Cameron, uh, there was actually the price of entry, Nick Clegg's, turned out to be an appalling decision to go into a coalition government. Um, there turned out to be a vote on PR. 
it was a, an alternative vote system and it got absolutely hammered because the British public are absolutely convinced that this approach, first-past-the-post system, gives stable government. They look at Italy and don't really understand Italy, for example. So in Italy, it looks like a confusion of a mass of changing governments all the time. In actual fact, of course, it's the same people just going around the roundabout, by and large, until very recently. So actually, there's more stability than, than it seems. But anyway, that is the perception, despite the lack of evidence, really. The third, I think, is that there is a very long history to the constituency-based system, which has grown up gradually. I mean, since, you know, 1295, this system has grown up. Although, interestingly enough, you, the winner-takes-all approach in a constituency is comparatively recent. In the 19th century, the vast majority, until about 1884, were multi multi-candidate constituencies could be up to eight and everybody got one vote or at one stage one vote for every candidate so if there are eight candidates you've got eight votes so actually you've got quite a lot of cross voting a lot of tactical voting in very Tory areas like Henley on Thames for example no doubt you'd have got eight Tories elected in other areas it was very different so in actual fact this idea that there's one candidate per, per constituency is quite recent you had a lot much more variety uh, previously in addition though just one more point that rob made about compromise can compromise candidates mm. she said actually rob so i may be answering the wrong question i say one of the problems of first past the post is definitely not compromise compromised in the in the uk is achieved through parties which necessarily have to compromise in order to produce their manifesto between all the wings so in actual fact first past the post in a two-party system militates very powerfully in favour of stability and compromise. What it doesn't allow is a lot of diversity of voice in, in Parliament. Anyway, let's move on, because otherwise we're going to bloviate Royford. And if I may say, you were showing alarming signs of bloviating just then. Let's go for three now, and the lovely Michelle Gersich, who also gave us a speech pipe, and here it is. I want to thank you for a wonderful uh, presentation, the four episodes that you did were really fascinating. I do want to ask, though, how you would characterize the political parties as being a thing that made England. I understand how much these particular political parties have shaped the England that there is today, or rather the Britain. But the real question in my mind is, how would things have been different in the absence of political parties? So I think you would want to go back to the time just before the rise of parties as opposed to the rise of uh, royal factions and ask, would things have been different? And if so, how? That's my question. And I appreciate your considering it. And again, thank you both so much for all that you've done in this series. So look, Michelle, this is by far the best question that we've had ever in our lives. Not that all the others weren't excellent, as <laughs> they were. But this one is, in fact, I realised when I heard it, the question that we should have been answering instead of bloviating for four episodes. I mean, this is what we should have been talking about, isn't it? So in a panic now, we now have to try and answer that question. I am going to answer 
at some length. So get yourself a cup of tea, Royfield. So you thought you thought you said, Michelle, we should go back to before there were parties, and what did we have then? And we there we had groupings based around individuals. So medieval parliaments were dominated by the magnates and their 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 tenantry and their affinity. In the 18th century, they're grouped around people. So I dug out some stats for you, Michelle. I hope you appreciate this, and I hope you're going to take notes. Have you got a pen and paper? Or we'll go, go, go get them. Okay, you ready? Pen and paper? Right, here we go. 1788 election. The way the MPs were divvied up was for the Crown, 186, because by that stage, a party was really, a biggest party was what were called the King's Friends, people who the King had given some patronage to, given a job to here or there, or indeed the, um, the PM, but mainly the Crown in that sense. Then Pitt the Younger, 52 people followed him. Other parties who supported the government, 43, which was Pitt the Younger, I assume, by then. Independence, so people who just moved with the, their, their thoughts, 108. Fox, 138. He's the opposition, and then some other bits and bobs. So basically, they're following people rather than parties. Then how parties form has been a slow process, and we hopefully we've talked about that a, little, a bit, and they evolve, and it's really the 1868 election where you begin to have mass voting. 1832 is extremely important, but 1868 begins to bring mass voting. And the thing about that, of course, is that then you've got a situation to manage. You can't just go and take, you know, if I was the Earl of Shaftesbury, I couldn't just say, I'm Royfield, you come, on, come along to my club, won't you? And, you know, dish out a bit of patronage and, you know, flatter the lad and all the rest of it. You can't do that anymore because you've got millions of voters. So parties evolve even more around the organization, not just ide ideology. You've got to communicate with people. So in addition, parties have grown in response to growing parliamentary power. Power used to reside in the king and their ministers. And indeed, the minister that goes on for a long time, well into the, the beginning of the 19th century. But parliament begins to become more and more powerful until the monarch becomes uh, titular almost. So you, the growth of party is associated with that growth of power. The commons becomes the place where work gets done and power resides. So the impact of that, I suppose, there are positive impacts, I think. I mean, I don't think, I don't know how you could organise politics without parties, actually. I don't know how you do it. So it ate away at the easy selection process. So no longer, as I said, could a magnate say, look, it's going to be Buggins' term this, this time in this constituency. Can't do it any, that anymore because you've got a party absolutely stripping away that power of privilege. There's a greater effectiveness of opposition. So when, you're, when you know you've got fewer people in the commons, you really have to work, of it, work at it. And it's the, the Rockamites... Um, the Earl of Rockham in the late 18th century, really start that process. There's very few Tories. So they really have to work it. They have to protest. They have to raise petitions about decisions won in or lost in the, in the Commons. And this is when the idea of His Majesty's loyal opposition comes up, which is you know, now a phrase. The concept of that up to then was ridiculous because you're know, opposition, you're opposing the king, you're a traitor almost. But His Majesty Opposition, the idea that there was a duty to oppose, comes around at the end of the 18th century and is a driver of party. 
it's a, it's a, it was a joke about against George Canning, by the way. There are negatives, of course, or things we think are ne- negatives, i.e. the voting on party lines thing. So as Disraeli said, you know, forget ideology or some place, forget ideology, think of your party. And of course, the ultimate example was David Cameron sacrificing the future of his country on the altar of the Tory party. So there's a worry, I guess, that ideology rather than free thinking and honest debate. And I think that's what's behind the drive for direct democracy, which would be one of the world's greatest disasters, in my view. But there you go. I think it would be just chaos. Maybe a lack of variety. So the dominance of party, as we've just discussed, leads to, you know, extreme ideas or wild ideas find it very difficult to get through the party system. Uh, so there's less radicalism and radicals like, I don't know, William Cobbett and Bright, John Bright, have to be brought into the Liberal parties and some things are accepted and some things are knocked off. And finally, the quality of communication to the population. Parties drive communication. They live and die by communicating with the, the, the electorate and the engagement of the electorate in politics is enormous, uh, way higher than it used to be, not just because of the franchise, but because of the efforts of parties. That is all I've got to say. I've tried to say it very, very quickly. Thank you, Michelle, for your question. Royfield, don't say anything, unless it's really clever. No, he's shaking his head. It was just a joke. Say something, well, Royfield. There was. Now, uh, that was a wonderful answer, by the way. Great Thank question. Thank you wonderful so answer. much. And I can't, and I, I can't think of how you would organise uh, modern politics without uh, competing ideologies, philosophies. I don't see how you can actually do that. Mm. And for the voter, things would be much, much, much more complicated to go back to a system which we had in the 18th century, which was all around personalities and, and various factions. Interestingly, there is a period in American politics. So if you go from about about the 1810s to 1832, fundamentally you only have the Democratic Republicans being the party, the Federalists are just gone. And what you've described in 18th century English politics is exactly that situation where it's all around personalities. So there is an election in the early 1820s in America, uh, which a a corrupt bargain is, is actually struck because it's just so complicated when there aren't clear party factions uh, for a president to actually command a majority in the electoral college, which then goes goes back to, to Congress. And it's a mess. It's a total mess. And it's actually some uh, Martin Van Buren who then comes in and says, we need parties so we can actually have structured politics. So there's an analogy in America to this. And I just think you need competing ideologies to go up against each other. And that way, um, it makes sense for the voter. I think you can't get round it. I, I, I just think it's impossible. OK, the next question. We're finished with our speech, Piper Doodles, now. So the next question, two questions are for you, Royfield. Over to you. Yes. Now, this is from Claire Asprey. I do know Claire very well. She called um, you out, she Royfield. Says, she called ni- you out. She did. She says, 1947, New Towns Act, not Milton Keynes. Now, Claire is... Technically correct, but fundamentally, I'm more correct. <laughs> uh, what the New Town Act does... No, this is... This, let me explain. Okay. So the New Towns Act was created, obviously, after World War II. And 
it allowed for this new vision of UK cities and towns to to be built. As we explained in the podcast, we had this really utopian spirit. Just not including Milton Keynes. World War II. Now, what this act does is to create towns like Harlow, Battledon, Crawley, Roncorn, Telford, etc., etc. And I did mention that not only does the New Town Act create these new towns, but also it gives the spirit of civic renewal to places like London and Birmingham. So in London, one of the vestiges of this that you can see is the West Way. London was going to be divided up and there was going to be an internal motorway within London. There was going to be a West Way, a North Way, an East Way and a South Way. By the time the West Way is finished, this top-down urban planning is seen as being draconian and actually destroying communities. Now, Milton Keynes comes out of a second wave. So in 1967, there is the Milton Keynes Development Corporation Act, which is an act of parliament, which does create Milton Keynes. But even though Milton Keynes wasn't part of the 1947 Act, it's part of the spirit that Britain, the UK, can create new towns and radically remodel its cities. So whilst Claire is technically correct, and I just threw in Milton Keynes, and I should have really said Telford, really, it's part of the same ethos. We had this 20... You can stop the Crowther. Sorry. We had this 20 to 30-year period after... World War Two, where government said, we can create cities, we can recreate cities. And Milton Keynes was part of that. And it's the, the New Towns Act of 1947, which is the genus. The act did terrible damage to Birmingham and to places like Coventry. These urban planners looked at the wrong civic model. They looked at America and said the car was going to be the future. So a lot of these new towns are dominated by roundabouts, broad roads, which are now called strodes, which are incompatible with pedestrians and with shops and with true civic life. So the New Towns Act, it starts off with the greatest of ethoses, but actually wrought havoc. It should never, ever have come to pass, though I understand the reasons why. Excellent. Ken McDonald has a question for you also, which I think is a quite a point of order sort of thing. Ken McDonald's question, he says, was it only Denmark and the UK who failed to limit Eastern European immigration? I misspoke. I said Denmark, it was Sweden. I think Ken's point was to say that I thought the whole point of the EU was free movement throughout member states. And absolutely, that is the case. But because of the economic disparity between the new states who gained accession, your Polands, your Czech Republics, your Slovakias, etc., a moratorium for two years was put on free movement of travel without a visa for those countries coming into established EU countries. The only countries that did not put the two-year moratorium were Ireland, Sweden, not Denmark, and the UK. And just to reiterate, the British government thought that I think about 36,000 Poles would move from Poland to Britain and settle and look for work. And in 18 months, it was 1 million. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And the next question is from Gerard Richmond, saying that there hasn't been an MP sitting in the Lords since 
Salisbury, but it was pretty common. So how did the convention develop that PMs and ultimately the other holders of the major cabinet office have to sit in the Commons? Basically, it's simply a matter of practicality. The Commons becomes more and more the centre of power. It is the representative of mass politics and it is the place really where legitimacy becomes to reside. And therefore, controlling the commons is absolutely critical. And it's very difficult for a PM to control and manage parliament if they're not in there day to day. So I think it's simply a matter of practicality. That's where power resides. And therefore, that's where the PM has to sit. Any, anything to add to that, Roy? Not really. Not really. I think you, you've summed it up perfectly. There was this slow gravitational pull away from the Lords to the Commons, all the way through the period which we've really looked at in terms of import. We didn't really step through it during our analysis of this whole period of how the Lords becomes less and less important. Now, the next question is, again, by Michelle, and I think I'm going to pass this across to you because it is about the 20th century. Royfield. This is Michelle's question. This isn't exactly about British political history, but I'm curious about the Race Relations Act. Was it at all influenced by what was going on in the US regarding the civil rights movement? Who introduced it in Parliament? Was there any opposition? Did recent colonial independence have any bearing? Yes, yes, and yes. Something which doesn't really get really remarked in British history and race relations is a Bristol bus boycott, which is famous in Bristol, but not really outside. This happened in the early 1960s, and there was a kind of a troika of local black activists who basically said, do not catch the buses in Bristol. This wasn't because black people were told to get on the back of the bus, but the local bus company in Bristol did not employ non-white bus drivers. So there was, I think it was a local Sikh man tried to get a job. And then these activists said, no, this is ridiculous. The Bristol Bus Company was boycotted. So this happened in the early 1960s. They did use civil rights in America as a model. And as I said on the podcast, it was common to see up until this act signs in a window saying no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Who opposed it? There were some conservative MPs. Uh, one Enoch Powell, who we didn't really mention, and Nicholas Fairburn and a Robert Carr. Powell argued that the act would create a two-tier system of race relations, saying that the bill may be well-intentioned, but it is a bill which sets up two classes of citizens, and that is alien to the whole tradition of British democracy. Fairburn said that the act was unnecessary, saying that the race relations bill is an unnecessary piece of legislation, we already have a great deal of legislation to protect citizens from discrimination and bigotry. And I think it's a landmark bit of legislation. I am black. I'm very proud to be English, British, of Jamaican parentage. And you can't talk about the post-English political world and society without A, mentioning the Windrush and the Race Relations Act. These are two seminal things which go to make up the fact that the country is now 18% non-white. Oh, and did the recent colonial independence have any bearing? Yes, there's a real change in attitude. I did a, a rather terrible Macmillan impression that the winds of change are blowing through Africa. It's with, pretty awful. It sounds more like Wilson. Mrs. Macmillan. So the empire is gone 
and we are now this new society of which the Wilson government is the exemplar of that. It's the white heat of technology. Things are going to be much more egalitarian. And there is some notion of the country being inclusive, though they wouldn't have probably said it at that point in that way. And yes, the colonies have gone. These are equal nations. By the time the colonies then go, then people don't have an automatic right of being in the country. So if you've already got in, good on you. So yes, it does have a part to play. Great. Okay, next question comes from Ken. Great. And it's a lovely question, Ken. And you do ask lovely questions, Ken. There are a couple which come up in the History of England thing soon, actually. But things that you mentioned, which I haven't forgotten. So Ken's question is about the mechanics of election. How did the mechanics of voting work? How did they change over time? What were the wealth requirements for eligibility? Who maintained the roles? Did one walk into a polling booth on an appointed day and receive a ballot? Was the ballot secret? Who tallied the results? The one, there is one problem with this question, Ken, which is that to answer it would require an entire podcast and we don't have time for that so i'm going to give you some answers but i promise i will do a shedcast at some point on this sort of topic because it's a lot of fun anyways a few points right up to the 20th century the electoral system was incredibly varied this is the big thing about the 1832 reform act boroughs were set up by their own individual charters and they had their own system of voting so it's very difficult to do a one size fits all because there isn't a one size fits all. There were multi-candidate constituencies, as we've just mentioned. Some elections were contested. Most were not contested at all. Royfield, Lord Royfield, would come along and say, it's Dave's turn this time. There's only one candidate going to go up. So if you want another one, you can suck on it. In fact, I think even by the time of the civil wars, when you get a very antsy parliament in 1641, obviously, it's only something like 20% of the constituencies which are contested. So it's very chaotic up to that. And election is by acclamation, okay, for the most part, until we get secret ballots. So the idea is you all go along to the hustings and everybody gathers. Although we think the electorate is very small, something like 25% in the, the late 18th century, it gets smaller actually because population grows, but the qualification doesn't change. So it goes down for a while, then back up after 1832. But even the people who are not involved in it or are not voting get involved. So you have these massive scrums in the 18th century in particular where everybody, the world and her husband, comes along and there's parties and there's groups and there's charabanks and there's people with their lunch sitting around. 10,000 people in some areas when the electorate might be, I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 or something. Ah! Quick correction is needed to my answer on elections. I said that voting was done by acclamation. It's not quite the right answer. I mean, often there was an initial call for an acclamation so that the returning officer could get an idea what was going on. But thereafter, they went to the polls. Clerks were set up at tables and the voter approached them to give their vote or votes. People weren't trusting about it either. They had to convince the clerk they were eligible and most sensible candidates employed locals to identify any ringers. Anyway, all the rest is right. Secret ballots from 1872 and all that, but I just wanted to correct that bit. Election by acclamation, of course, means that the landlord can see if his tenants has voted as he required them to vote. And so he's deeply dodgy. You have to be quite brave to vote against the landlord's requirement. 
much more chaotic. In medieval times in particular, when the electorate would have been much smaller, the guys might come in, the late local tough might come in with this group of tough stand around looking threateningly, which they did in court as well, actually, to make sure that the jury or the electorate, whatever it is, give the right decision. So it's a hit and miss affair. During the 19th century, that gets... Oh, and by the way, in the medieval times and early 18th century, there is a returning officer. The returning officer is responsible for maintaining the poll book and making the returns for the election. That was usually the sheriff or the mayor. The returning officer is still now titular, the mayor, but he doesn't actually do any work, of course. It's a local, local authority administrator, civil servant. There are some poll books which I think survive from the 14th century, and they maintain a list. So nowadays, of course, we've got registration. Local authorities manage it. They send out forms. You say, yes, we all live here. We can vote. But previously, the sheriff would sit down and decide who was on the poll book according to the rules. So that, again, is a very personal and possibly dodgy and corruptible process. The elections themselves are a bit of a hoot because you have pre-meetings. All the gentry very often would meet up beforehand, have a meeting and decide who's going to be selected. The magnates would, of course, wade in as well, though they weren't supposed to. So again, it's very much of a stitch up. Then through the 19th century, you get progressively, it becomes more organised. So, for example, in 1852, you get the Corrupt Praxis Act, which limits the amount of spending you can do and bans treating. Treating is a practice where, it's like the practice when you go into the boozer, and I got into this once when I lived in a little village with one pub. You went into the pub and you bore everybody around because you had a wild moment, which meant that you had to stay up till three o'clock in the morning with a lock-in because everybody bought you rounds back. So treating was that the candidate with the most money would come in and say, I'm going to buy everybody drinks, food and all the rest of it. So that gets banned. So corrupt practices slowly get winnowed out. In 1872, we get secret ballots. Then they would cast their vote in a ballot and they, nobody would know how they'd vote, voted. That's as much of an answer I can give. I think I would love to go and see an early 19th century or an 18th century election. It would have been a hoot and a scrum. I actually think, David, that not the next podcast, we should actually do a podcast on this because it is fascinating. I've learned a lot from the research that you've actually done. Thank you, Ken, for asking the question. I do intend to do it in a shedcast, actually, Roy, but it'd be nice if you could join in with that shedcast. Oh, okay. 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 Deal. So uh, the next question is yours. And actually, you've touched on this, actually. This is Jerry again. This is fantastic. Jerry, Ken, Michelle, you warm our hearts. Royfield. Here is the question. Now, Gerald and Vernon and others have said. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. ...suggested that there's a hidden reason for the Tory success in the 1970 election was, in fact, Enoch Powell's River of Blood speech by tapping into the concerns of white working-class voters who had historically voted Labour 
but were becoming uncomfortable with non-white immigration into the UK, which they blamed for which they blamed Labour. For example, the dock workers in London who held a large pro-power march after his speech. Did your or Royfield's research suggest that Despite Heath booting Powell from the Tory shadow cabinet, a significant number of Labour parties went Tory in 1970 because they liked Powell's message. Yes, that was most definitely one of the causes for this surprise vote. Surprise if you were an opinion poller and Harold Wilson. In 1968, there was this Rivers of Blood speech, which was highly critical of immigration. And to put this into context, Enoch Powell was this maverick conservative who in the 1950s had been actually been pro-immigration. But then he turns around and, and says that, no, the fundamental fabric of British cities has been changed by, by, by these immigrants. And let's say that he was an immigration skeptic, and that's probably putting it at its most mild. And he's seen as being on the right wing of the Conservative Party. And he's actually going to leave the Conservative Party very, very soon afterwards. A very charismatic politician polls conducted in the wake of Powell's speech did show that a large majority of the British public agreed with him with his start on immigration. Basically, no more. We did talk about this during our last podcast in 1948, Empire Windrush comes. It's just over a thousand Jamaican immigrants. By the early 1960s, the non-white population of Britain is now up to a million. So it is sizable. There's no two ways about it. And when you have sizable immigration, let alone immigrants who look different, eat different food, etc., some people are going to be rubbed up the wrong way. Some white working class people thought they were being outcompeted by these new immigrant communities. And maybe what happened with the polling was that the pollers weren't really asking the right questions. And also, there was a certain level of shame, in inverted commas, with people saying that they overtly agreed with the Rivers of Broad speech, but then wouldn't go and actually tell pollers that they did and that maybe they were going to vote in a way which was against the Labour Party, who they saw as being much more pro-immigration. But also, the British press did show a lot of support for Powell. So it was the Daily Telegraph, the Times, the Express, all ran editorials in support of Powell and his views on immigration. These newspaper editorials and polls provided the Conservatives with a significant boost in public support, which ultimately helped them to win the election. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very okay. much, Royfield. And here is another question. This is from Leonard Goodnight. And I think this is better to, for you, Royfield, because you know about politics and I mm, don't. <laughs> It's wrong to say that you don't know about it politics. Really isn't. We just have our different areas of expertise. Okay, you're like, very kind. You can talk at length about the 18th century, and I sit here with rapt attention. Right, here is the question from Leonard Goodnight. Could you talk some more about Euroscepticism and how it migrated from the left to the right? That's interesting to me, especially when you get into more intellectual ideological opposition. There's an English born American journalist, Charles C.W. Cook who's a conservative libertarian over here, but writes on this issue, and only this issue. His hero is the great socialist MP, Tony Benn, who said in a 1990 speech that even if I agree with everything that is proposed, I cannot hand away powers lent to me for five years by the people of Chesterfield. I just could not do it. It would be theft of public rights. This case makes a lot of sense to me. Cook wrote one of the better articles I saw on Brexit in at the time where I first ran across this quote. Now, 
the referendum to decide if the UK should remain in the European Economic Community, the C of 1973, was held in June the 5th, 1975. The country had already been a member of the community for some two years beforehand. Uh, the accession was in 1973. Now, the Conservative Party at the time was led by Edward Heath and was largely in favour of membership of the EC. Heath was quoted as saying, the choice is between being a great nation in Europe and a small nation in isolation. Huh. <laughs> well, we should have had Heath saying that back in 2016. One of the reasons why there was this change in Euroscepticism going from left to right is because back then, what Europe was was the European economic community. And what you had were people on the left of the Labour Party who were worried that this is fundamentally something which is going to aid big business and capitalism. Ideologically, they were opposed to this. There wasn't really a sense of the country losing sovereignty, political sovereignty back then. This was really a traditional workers against capital and companies viewpoint. Now, by the late 1980s, Britain's economic position vis-a-vis -vis the other European members has somewhat changed. I think by when we accede in 1973, our economy is only just smaller than that of West Germany. By the late 80s, we actually get passed by Italy, let alone France, at one point. And one of the things which Margaret Thatcher is arguing against are the amount of contributions that we have to put in. Because this was calculated in a 1973 formula, which was we are one of we are the second biggest economy, so we're going to pay much more in. By the late 1980s, we are like the fourth, though we do go past Italy and France in the 1990s again. And Margaret Thatcher is arguing against contributions in. That's the first thing. Then secondly. There is this mission to change the European economic community into the EU, the European Union. So there is more centralised power and political power to the organisation. Now, so then you have pe people on the right now arguing not only that we should be paying less, but then also that the creeping mandate of the European Union needs to be stopped, that there comes a point and potentially British sovereignty is going to be uh, trampled on. The reason why large elements on the left then see this as not being so problematic anymore is because one of the bastions of workers' rights and consumer rights is actually going to be the EU. It, it doesn't just facilitate trade, but also standards of how we should actually treat workers. So you get this very slow by the 19th 80s and 90s, between the scepticism really going on the left and going on to the right. And there is a philosophical argument that Parliament should be sovereign, and this new political union is going to trample over that, or is trampling over it. Though I would actually say they can never really come up with the real examples of how British sovereignty is being marginalised or trampled over, because the country always had a veto. So this is a bit of legislation which we didn't like. We can just veto it and not sign up to it. But it comes at a philosophical point. And then there is immigration. And the issue of Eastern European immigration becomes a hotbed in the British press, in the right-wing British press in the early 2000s. Living in London at the late 90s, there were lots of Spanish and Italians 
French, I think something like 300,000 French nationals actually live in London. And that wasn't seen as being a problem. The economy was booming. The Eastern European migration really does fuel the UKIP party because they're now seen just as the West Indian and the South Asian immigrants are two generations before potentially outcompeting white working class labor. So you go to lots of building sites, there'd be Polish, Bulgarian, Slovaks, etc., and plumbers and builders. So the whole thing shifts from being left to right in a 40 year period. Okay, we've got one final question, Roy Field from Marilyn Little. I might give it a go, although I think you might be better at this. But I, Marilyn says, can you elaborate and discuss further the stunning reverse from the Labour government fortunes in 1950-51 compared to 1945, when, of course, they ran a, won a runaway victory to much to people's surprise, especially in the light of the NHS, says Marilyn, absolutely. 45 won probably by the Labour because there had been no election since... 1935 and the formation of the national government, plus all the action throughout the war had involved central planning. And there was this idea that actually the things that Labour were rec recommending in 1945 were very much about this central planning thing. That was what was going to happen. So people were used to the idea and enthusiastic about it. It seemed to work during the war. By 1950-51, the amount of reform may well have scared the middle classes, especially in the South. So support for the Labour Party drifted away there by the 1951 election. Also, Labour, Labour had begun to run out of ideas. And actually, it's a feature of party politics as a general thing that times of radical change tend to be followed by a longer period of conservatism, and hence why the Conservative Party wins more elections and has more time in government than the Labour Party. So I think you're seeing that process as well. Hey, everything's changed a lot. Let's just calm down for a while. But also Labour had run out of ideas. They'd implemented their manifesto of 1945. Didn't really have anything majorly new. And the campaigns in 50 and 51 were apparently a bit lacklustre. I don't know because I wasn't there. But apparently that's what they say. And also the Labour Party had lost some key figures like Ernest Bevin, Strafford, Cripps. And then the Tories, I think, were created a scare around the prospect of more nationalisation, although Labour actually didn't say they would. So I think that's why I'd say. So look, we have come to the end of the questions. Thank you so much, everyone, for asking so many questions and such wonderful questions. It does, however, mean, Royfield, that we have gone on. And I think that... David, can I just quickly say that actually you did much more talking on this episode than me. And actually, I, for one, applaud you for that because you came up with some proper zingers, you did some proper research and you concisely put it together. But actually, don't say we went on. You're being rude while kicking me in the ass. That is the English way. No, by patting yes. you on the bum. <laughs> yes, you on the indeed. Bum, yes, excellent. <laughs> okay, I admit my fault, obviously, and I've been rubbish and I formally apologise. There's no I in team. Royfield. Although it has to be said, there is a you in buttered. <laughs> <laughs> the oldies are the besties. So look, I su suggest that what we do is cut to the chase and have our fun bit mm. that Luke suggested and have our best MPs, worst MPs and pivotal moments in UK politics. Do you agree or disagree, Royfield? I do agree, sir. I Excellent do agree. This is a fitting culmination of this whole series. Right. Now, 
Can I just say that it's clearly impossible for me to come up with one answer as the best best PM? Just can't do it. Impossible. You go first and I'll go it's next. Totally one. possible. It's totally possible. Not to me, Royfield. It's hard for me not to go with what is seen as the consensus. So Walpole, you got to say Walpole's pretty awesome because he's the first one. He defines the role to a degree. Hey, Pitt the Younger, blah, 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 Disraeli and Gladstone. It's hard to look past those. So I'm not going to mention them because I'm just fundamentally just taking in what I've read. And the 20th century is much more my wheelhouse with this stuff. So I'm going to go for Clem Attlee. Fundamentally, post-war Britain is modelled by his administration and he had around him ables who could implement this system of democratic socialism, fundamentally, to give an underpinning to everybody's lives that if you fell on hard times, you wouldn't be destitute. It's a good yeah. choice and who are, and I'm not sure I'd argue with it actually. If you're arguing against it, you're arguing against it from a philosophical point of view that what he did was wrong, oh, you... as opposed to saying that he didn't actually do it and remodel the country. And there was a massive consensus for 40 years. But then I might argue that people did that earlier as well. I mean, Clem is topmost in our mind because it accords with our feelings now about the, how the world should be, whereas, of course, Pitt the Younger worked in a very different world. But Milos was Pitt the Younger, a man of principle, humane if pragmatic, resigned over Catholic emancipation, though, of course, he did then come back later. Gladstone has got to be up there, man of principle, transformed the nature of politics in the 19th century from mm. a vested interest to improving the good of the nation. Disraeli, because he's very funny. And he, with the exception of Boris Johnson, you've got to enjoy his wit. Robert Peel. I was going to say, if you want prime ministers who are good at jokes, yes. Johnson's up there then. He's not Even on the top. Even if he's sharing though. it. His jokes are shite. Anyway, Robert Peel, it said, <laughs> I remember when we were at school, Royfield, we were given a quote about England and Ireland from a bloke called Kenneth Clark, who I think was Alan Clark's dad, who wrote a book called Civilization. Mm. In it, he said, there is barely a single event of, in Ireland of which the English can be proud. If there were, which I've never found anything to argue against, any evidence to argue against, to be honest. But if there is one, it's probably Robert Peel, who did actually work quite hard, although he's not particularly popular in Ireland, but he did work quite hard to improve the lot of the common man. And of course, in, in Ireland, and he did repeal the Corn Laws, although, of course, the British response to the Great Hunger was entirely inadequate. And then Stanley Baldwin, because I like the idea of a hobbit as a PM. And Stanley Baldwin <laughs> was the ultimate hobbit. But I'm going to have to go Gladys. There's just no choice. All right. Deeply boring I, man. I'll, I wouldn't invite him round for supper, but I would invite Disraeli. But still, an impressive. I'm going to throw in a name which we didn't mention on the podcast. And we assigned us or subscribed a lot of his success to Asquith. It's actual Campbell Bannerman. True. Good it's Campbell time. Bannerman back there with that reforming government and he dies some two years afterwards and then Asquith picks up the mantle. Campbell Bannerman relinquishes his office because he's really sick and he dies three, four months after relinquishing office and he gets forgotten. And we remember Asquith who then continues this and remember Lloyd George as being the reforming Chancellor. Okay, great. Do we want to go for a worst PM? This is a tricky one. And again, I'm rooted in the 20th century. 
And I'm going to say this with massive caveats, massive caveats. How big um, are those caveats? Not only uh, oh, pretty big, Men describe them, pretty, you know. pretty massive. Okay. Huge. I say. Huge. So I'm a Brummie and this family did a lot for They Birmingham. did. You're not going to say this. As a Brummie. No, as a Brummie. Okay. Number one, I know that you gave David Cameron a real kick in. Yes. It was a political miscalculation, which has had severe ramifications on the country and our country's GDP and on our international standing. But if I'm using the rule that anything that's happened less than 20 years isn't really history, we're still in contemporary politics with discussing Brexit and the full ramifications of it. Okay, so I have to put that to one side. Fair enough. I am ideologically opposed to literally everything that Margaret Thatcher stood for. But I will admit that at the end of this 40-year period of political consensus, that something was going wrong with Britain and we needed to reinvigorate ourselves. I would say that she did it the wrong way, but she is an icon for many. Okay, so I'm not going to say Margaret Thatcher. So you're going to go for Neville? I'm going to go for Neville Chamberlain, though what he did was honourable. And to appease Nazi Germany in 1938, right, you've got to view it here in 1938. The Germans actually had some legitimate beefs. Why Austria wasn't part of Germany was because people had basically said at the end of the Treaty of Versailles, it just can't be, even though they're ethnic Germans. And if you'd have asked them back in 1919, do you want to be part of Germany? They probably would have said yes. Then self-determination meant that the people in the Sudetenland did want to be part of Germany. So Germany had legitimate beefs and people knew it at the time. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, should we have appeased Germany back then? Absolutely not. Should we basically not only have threatened them with war, but gone to war with them? The Second World War would have been much shorter the sooner we had actually taken on Nazi Germany. But that's with the benefit of hindsight. Germany wasn't ready for a war in 1936, 37, 38 against the Western powers. So with massive caveats saying that this is with hindsight we're looking at this. And actually what Chamberlain wanted to do was honourable. We had the opportunity to stop the Germans a good year plus before we actually did. It is so, a little bit questionable regrettably, about whether we could stop it. Have but, to stop and I might argue that mm. we had a, a, an extra year to rearm and Cheville Namberlin did take that opportunity. With, this is, I said this is with great caveats because you might say Anthony Eden, right? And in the greater scheme of things, our imperial decline was set fast then and actually all he really did was to embarrass us for a period of time but actually the trajectory of the country was already set fast the empire was going it was just that in the full glare of the world we acted like it was 1905 but actually it was a minor bit of embarrassment really that's annoying because i was going to go for anton eden as my worst and i think you knew that because i'd said it before the program started and you've just Stolen my clothes, in the words of Disraeli. Stolen my clothes and dished the wigs. Wait a minute, David. I'm going to hand your clothes back to you. That's a very good idea, because I'm telling you, it's not pleasant when I haven't got my clothes. (laughs) Tell me why Eden is Wow, for exactly why you're saying, because he just failed to understand the realities of the world. 
And, you know, but I agree with your point that in terms of the scheme of things, if you say that Neville... Yes, I'm going to concede the point. I might also come up with a couple of other candidates, but probably for please not, do probably not for very serious reasons. It's got to be said. There is also Spencer Compton. Spencer Compton was prime minister for one year and 137 days in the 18th century, and he was a man so disliked that it was said that no man who ever worked for Spencer Compton ever wanted to work for him again, which I think is some kind of record. So I might suggest Spencer in addition to Anthony Eden. Then there was the Earl of Bath, who was asked by George to be the PM, despite the fact that he had seen no sport. And there was a quote in the local press saying, a joke saying, be careful if you're walking around the streets of London, because it's very likely that the Earl of Bath is going to ask you to be in his cabinet. So maybe <laughs> he could be the epic <laughs> fail. But I guess you're right. It'd be interesting to have a discussion about Neville Chamberlain because I think it's a little bit more complex. And as you say, he was trying to save millions of lives. I'm not sure he could have done. I think you're probably absolutely mm. right. Just because I know that a goodly proportion of our listenership is American. You're so going to say, to say Lord North, eh? Absolutely. I was tempted. Absolutely. But it wasn't North's because... fault, really. It was George's fault for being such a stubborn bugger. I know... <sighs> People say it's Parliament was in control, and they were, but it, George does bear quite a lot of responsibility for it. In the same way as he's more responsibility for the idiocy of not granting Catholic eman emancipation to the Irish in 1801, which is utter idiocy, and everything else good that he did, George III, wiped out by that piece of stupidity. I put it to you. And you have. Let me rebut. We do have the primacy of Parliament over the monarch by the time of the American Revolutionary War. And it's one of the things which I say to Americans all the time, because they talk about the tyranny of King George. At that point, we have a constitutional monarchy where the executive decisions are actually made by Parliament. We absolutely do. And it's very easy for the American revolutionaries to say this is the tyranny of the king, or really this is the wrong-headedness of the Prime Minister, who is Lord North. And yes, George actually wants the war to continue after Yorktown, when the news of that defeat comes back, and the bean counters in Parliament basically say, how much is this costing us? Let's just call it off. George does want to continue the war. And look, looked at it back then, New York is still occupied by, by the British and actually, the majority of the population of New York is pro-British. The South is pro-British, etc. So you could look at it and go, oh, yeah, let's keep going. But this is the cost, which really does for this. But if you look at whether it, all those various acts, the Stamp Duty Act, and the various small decisions which lead to the conflict, a wiser British prime minister would have said there, there are some points here to be made we can nip this in the bud yeah, so after lord north should be the finest prime minister because he recognized <laughs> because he recognized I, 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 that there needed to be a separation but, but between north with... and north america and the uk <laughs> you know it needed to happen but there wasn't no, but okay you're i'm being silly way, David, i withdraw the statement there's unreserved. canada no there's, there's yes, canada true, true. so viewed that way we don't even get the separation in terms of British imperial history, rightly or wrongly, however you feel about it, the American War of Independence is anomalous to it. 
But anyway, Lord North for the Americans. Okay. That'll make them happy. He made strategic right. blunders. And in this country, we are, of course, very keen since the day of Winston Churchill in particular, of aligning our policies with the world superpower. And the last thing was the most pivotal moment. So I'm going to restrict you to five, Roy Field, and we can go alternately. So you go one. Why don't you start? I oh, haven't okay. even thought of this, to be honest with you. Haven't you? I didn't even look at it. I missed it. Yeah, you well, start. The one I'm going to go to to begin with is the French Revolution, which I realise isn't a UK revolution. But its impact in UK politics is utterly fundamental. When Britain had a, an, a moment where it could have gone the revolutionary way, it was not inevitable that it would go the way it did. What it did in the end was reinforce and solidified identities in British politics, church loyalism to the throne, patriotic Britishness. It established a belief in evolutionary change rather than revolutionary change and a very strong commitment to the British constitution. So I think our response to the French Revolution was one of those pivotal moments in UK politics. I put it to you. Wow, that's a good one. I've just been doing a bit of reading about Tom Paine and we touch on this so lightly about the enlightenment and radical liberal thinking of that period that there was in Britain. And Thomas Paine leaves Britain, gives philosophical heft to the American Revolution, goes to revolutionary France. He was part of this whole movement which looked at politics anew and it's really just set British politics away from continental. And though he was a revolutionary, by a generation, a lot of his ideas have seeped into the Liberal Party, which then becomes part of its bone marrow. And yes, what separates us from revolutionary France is exactly that. It's revolutionary France and we were evolutionary Britain. I'm going to go and say somebody who we barely talked about, who most people will think is the greatest British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill. And I'm going to go him deciding to fight on in 1940 was literally him in cabinet. Cabinet is literally split. And he decides to fight on and his indomitable spirit and his speeches do infuse the country. And it's something which I've said in one of our first of our podcasts, that at that point, we go from being Imperial Britain to Little England. And he says, we are now a small country and we need to fight and for what is right. Lord Halifax et al. were correct geopolitically then. We cannot fight this. We need to come to a com accommodation with the Germans. If you're looking at the balance sheet and what the country was facing, then Halifax is right. But Churchill was righter. Great choice. Yeah, absolutely. OK, I'll go with number two, 1846 and the Tory split, which gave rise to the rise of classical liberalism as a result and would lead a fundamental change in politics away from a single class perspective towards government for the national good and under Gladstone, the development of the idea of state intervention. I would have that as one of my seminal moments in British politics. It's a boring one, I have to admit, but it is one. Do you want me to go I'm with another one? Go... What do you think? No? Okay, good. I've got it. Um... This will come as no surprise to anybody because I am fundamentally a reformer of that 1906 government and they don't get the plaudits that they deserve. By the end of that tenure, we have old age pensions, we have secondary education, 
we have even down to free school meals and we have a restriction of the power of the lords to veto what the commons does so i'm going to go that for me is pivotal chartism they create a an impetus change although they themselves don't win electoral success they change the conversation in the late 19th century the mid 19th century and in the end all of their program gets adopted with the exception of annual parliaments which was a rubbish idea anyway so i think chartism is a big mass movement which i think supports the growth of socialism in the uk number four ireland and scotland i know that's maybe two but both those nations have had a massive impact on our politics and in particular ireland you have to say during the 19th century which is history proper history rather than the 20th century which obviously isn't and then my last one was the 1867 parliament act because that is the start of its real start of the party system and we are after all talking about party politics that is a real start of mass politics and the party systems the whips there are seven times more whips in 1868 than there were before the act anyway all right we didn't talk about the achievements of tony blair much and so one of the things which we really were remiss, and this is on me, and I'm saying this is on me because I was fundamentally doing the Labour Party, was devolution. And you've mentioned that Scotland and Ireland have made a massive, played a massive part in English for such British politics. The very fact that the Labour Party allowed there to be a devolved parliament in Scotland and then a Senate in Wales has really created a very strange constitutional arrangement whereby all of the constituent parts of the United Kingdom have their own parliament apart from England. In effect, we have... Apart from England, as you say, which is an outrage. How on earth did we end up there? Absolutely. What an absolute travesty. It's like the old Soviet Union when there wasn't a parliament for Russia, but there were these rubber stamp parliaments for all the other constituent republics. Anyway, so what this is going to do and is doing is forcing us to understand and come to a real reckoning with English politics, English political identity going forward. And I think that this is something which we haven't really grasped at the moment, but we're beginning to slowly get there. The devolution of Wales and Scotland is actually a bigger deal than we all think. Also, the the Good Friday Agreement, we barely touched on the troubles in Northern Ireland and the fact that for a generation and a half, those troubles were not only in Northern Ireland, but in UK cities, namely like Birmingham, there were bombings in Warrington and various places in London, etc. And that to be put to bed. The reason why I think that is important, because it is a hangover, very obviously, of the 19th century when there always was home rule for Ireland, that question. And actually, there's a tacit admission that we know that it's just a matter of time before Northern Ireland becomes part of a united Ireland. The demographics are all pointing that way. In the last census, there's as majority more Catholics and Protestants. And actually being part of the EU made that much easier as yeah, well. It's interesting, actually. It makes uh, it easier for Northern Ireland and harder for Scotland. Exactly, exactly. So Very I'll throw good. that in. I, you know, I have to go back to the Windrush because when I travel the world and I'm sat here doing this in California, a lot of Americans are surprised that I speak with the accent that I do, looking the way that I do. People presume I'm an African-American until I open my mouth. In Western Europe, me being 
English and being black doesn't raise at all an eyebrow. But outside of that, in Eastern Europe, it does. In in, in other bits of the world, no. it actually does. So I'm going to say the Empire Windrush in 1948, which now means that almost one fifth of Brits are non-white. And as I said, is really significant in terms of understanding this polyglot, multicultural English identity, which, which we now have, which is always represented by the football team when we see it go out and play. They're a rainbow of colours, and also by the fact that the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is non-white. Indeed, all excellent choices. I think we've probably delighted our listeners enough now. I want to thank everybody who took part and gave us questions and all the rest of it. I would like to thank Royfield for being part of it. You'll just then just thank him. It's quite simple. <laughs> Actually, I think being part of it is a bit presumptuous, because it was your idea. But anyway, so I'd like to thank me for being part of Royfield's presentation thank you very much for listening everybody it was fantastic and it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me bye mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company united healthcare insurance plans offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more one of these plans may be right for you if you're say between jobs coming off your parents plan turning a side hustle into a full hustle or even missed open enrollment want more flexibility find out more about united healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.